come as this morning to Matthew chapter 8, and we, as I mentioned, we did conclude the, the Sermon on the Mount um, last Sunday. And if uh, you're like me, you're wondering, where, where do we go from here? Where does the story go from here? Uh, those three chapters, Jesus laying out the character of the kingdom, laying out what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And it's, you know, preaching for a while, right? So the question that bubbles up in me is, what happens next? What is going to happen now? Because preaching and words are one thing, but how do those words, those ideas, those thoughts, those principles, how do they flesh themselves out in the reality of life? And what we see in transitioning from Matthew chapter 7 and now into Matthew chapter 8 is the Sermon on the Mount becomes the Sermon on the Move, the Sermon on the Move. And really for the rest of the gospel, we're going to see those ideas about the kingdom, those ideas about who Jesus is as king. We're going to see all of that flesh itself out over these, uh, the rest of the story, uh, if you will. And we begin here in chapter 8 with three portraits, if you will. Three pictures of really Jesus' power as a healer. And underneath each of these three port portraits is a portrait that was drawn long ago by the prophet Isaiah. When in speaking about the suffering servant who is Jesus... He says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the last verse of this section, this reference to uh, Isaiah. And really, that's kind of the point of this whole passage. These three portraits of power are coming from the one who will bear in his own body upon the cross, all the disease, sickness, and ugliness of our sin. And these three portraits, they are portraits of power, but this power is directed where? This power is for the powerless. And you see that there are three uh, people sort of intertwined here together. An unclean leper a Gentile servant, and a Jewish woman. And these are the three pictures that we have. So we're going to take a moment to look at each one and see how the Sermon on the Mount has become now the Sermon on the Move. We'll start with the first picture, and that is of uh, the leper. We see that Jesus has concluded the sermon. He's coming down from the mountain, and of course, great crowds are following him, and a leper comes before him. I think it's hard for us maybe in this day to connect to 
really what the reality of that moment was like for this leper to approach Jesus in this moment. But in that culture, in that context, at that time, leprosy uh, was a very much a dreaded ailment and disease. It is a somewhat contagious skin disease, right? And it affects, it affects not only the skin, but it affects the skin. It affects its color, its texture, even its odor. It also impacts the throat as well, right? It would cause a, a raspiness in the throat. And over time, uh, slowly, the uh, nerves in the body, the nerves that sense pain in our bodies become destroyed. So often lepers would, would lose um, parts of their appendages, the tips of maybe their fingers or, or their toes. They would have broken and wounded limbs because, because of the nerve issues, right? They couldn't... Um, understand maybe the feel the weight of something that that they were holding that was heavy or couldn't feel the heat of fire or couldn't process the the cut of a knife so injured all over but if you even if you take all of that maybe the most striking thing for a jewish person person the worst part of the disease was the separateness that went along with it if you look into uh, the Old Testament law and you look into Leviticus and you see there were requirements of separateness that existed for a leper. They had to wear torn clothes. Their hair was kept unkempt. They had to cover their mouths. They had to cry out, unclean, unclean as they walked around, as a warning to anyone that might hear, unclean. And even more than that, this uncleanliness meant that the lepers could not reside and live within the community of Israel. They were banished to the outskirts from God's people. And also, banished and far away from the temple and the presence of God. So when you, when you put this all together, right, the reality of this ailment, this disease, from the, from the disease itself to the, the social and cultural separateness that went with it, Take all of that together and now come back to verse 2 and you see what makes it so remarkable. And behold, a leper came to him, Jesus, and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I mean, if you look at him, his condition, his condition is so awful. And yet his faith is so awesome. Think again about verses 1 and 2. What did he have to do? This leper had to somehow make his way through this large crowd. And in order to do that, most likely, what was he saying as he came through that crowd? Unclean, unclean, 
unclean. He had to make it through and he had to announce and make it all the way to Jesus and he gets to the front of the line so that he can see Jesus. And he doesn't even come face to face. He comes face to foot. It says he kneels. In the original language, it has the idea of he prostrated himself, almost like face first before Jesus. And what is the first word out of his mouth? What is the first word? It is Lord. Lord. Now, if you think back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that you can call Jesus Lord, what? Without actually having a saving faith in him. If you remember from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you look forward into Matthew's gospel and how it is written, you'll see that this title, when people say Lord to Jesus, it is usually most often on the lips of the disciples or those who, like this leper, are sick and are in desperate need of him. So most likely, him saying Lord is more than just him being uh, polite because, because of what he says next. Because of what he says, says next, he's really invoking Jesus' lordship when he says Lord because what, he sa- what does he say? Lord, if you can, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, this is different. He doesn't say Lord, if you can make me clean. What does he say? If you will, you can make me clean, right? Not really a question. More of a statement. But if it was a question, if you wanted to turn it into a question, um, I think it would be something like this. Jesus, I recognize you have the power to make me clean. So will you. Now, I I would like us to notice something here about this leper's faith. And a certain balance that exists in his faith. He has confidence in Jesus. How do we know that? What does he say? You can heal me. And and also it is mixed with what? A humility. Because what does he say? Only if you will. A balance in his faith, a a confidence and a humility that comes together in his faith. Now, that is faith. It is absolute trust in Jesus and an absolute, what, poverty of spirit before him, right? If we want to pull a phrase from the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus do? What is his response? He doesn't say, uh, you know, hold on, wait a minute, you know, what's with all the kneeling? What's with this calling me Lord? Let's break that down for a second. He doesn't say that or, oh, leprosy, let me, let me get a specialist in here. He doesn't say anything like that. In fact, what is so interesting, at first, what? He doesn't say anything at all. 
we're, we're going to see in the next picture that with Jesus, only with his word that he can heal with just the power of his word. But in this portrait, in this picture, the first one, he first, he does not respond by speaking. He doesn't respond by his word. Instead, he does something that if we don't pause to understand and look at it, we would miss it. But it is remarkable what he does. What does he do? It says that he touched him. He touched him. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Here we find compassion. Here we find love. How long was this man a leper? I I don't know. How long had it been since someone had touched him? One year? Two years? Ten years? Imagine, imagine no one not able to feel human contact at all, even for a month, right? Not Not a handshake, not a hug, not a hold of the hand, not a hand on your shoulder, nothing. He touched him. I think back, um, this coming Friday will be two years since I, since I went into the, the hospital. And I remember, among many things, you know, just wanting to see my children. I just wanted to see them. But more than see them, I wanted to, I wanted to touch them. I wanted to touch them. I wanted to hug them, right? And just had that desire in me. It was so hard to not be able to and and there's a there's a very very uh, there's a video of me ugly crying when I finally saw them and I hugged those children but for me that just highlights this moment here of Jesus care and his compassion in that he doesn't speak a word to this man first he touches him he reached out his hand and touched him and in this picture we have another picture, right? Within the picture, we have this picture of Jesus' hand reaching out and touching this man. And this is a picture of the touch of the gospel. Because on one hand, it is a tangible demonstration of God's love for us in Christ. And also, on the other hand, it, is, it exemplifies what? Jesus taking on our infirmities. He touches him, taking on our sickness and sin. Really, it is what we read from Isaiah, or what is at the end of the chapter from Isaiah 53, that he bore it upon himself on the cross. According to Leviticus, the moment Jesus, according to Leviticus, the moment Jesus touches the leper, what? He becomes unclean. But this is Jesus, right? So what it does mean is that by by the means of his healing touch, it's as though Jesus is, is, is transcending the law without actually abolishing it, right? Because Jesus' touch doesn't make Jesus unclean, what does it do? 
it cleanses the unclean. It makes him clean. So by touching the leper, Jesus is showing that he is willing to take on himself his impurities. It's a foreshadowing of the cross. Jesus taking on our own iniquities. So he touches him. I'm sure it was, it was tenderly, the way he, he touched him. And then, but then, as tender as he touched him, I'm sure with the requisite same amount of authority, he orders that leprous body. What does he say? Now he says something, right? He touches him in tenderness, and then with all authority, what does he say? Be clean. Be clean. And what happened? Those walls of sin and sickness and separation, they all come tumbling down. It says in verse 4, so matter-of-factly, what does it say? And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Oh, to be there, I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if, if parts of his skin began, began to just fall off, or I don't know if his, his bruises and wounds were instantaneously healed. I don't, I don't know if the tips of his fingers and toes and appendages started to grow back or if his face and hair and breath all of a sudden were, were fresh and clean. But whatever it looked like, it must have been something to see. Now I want to, you to imagine you were there and then you were tasked with, like Matthew here, writing the, uh, the, the, the account of this. Now, I think if you or I were commissioned to do that and write something about this miracle, this moment, what would we have done next? We would have wrote it out in painstaking detail. One finger, next finger, this finger. It started to grow. It started to do all this and that. I think that's what I would do. Is that what we see? No, it's really interesting. Matthew ends this miracle story in a rather odd an unspectacular way, right? If you look at verse 4, and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. No vivid description of, of the healing, the mechanics, what it looked like. Rather, he ends it with this. It seems like there's this sort of proper timing to Jesus' ministry, that he doesn't want word about him getting out too soon in a way that's misinformed about his purposes. But I think it's so interesting, rather than the, this description, this vivid description of what happened in the healing, Jesus says to him, and I think, and I, and I think he's also saying to all of us here this morning, You've shown faith in me. Now what? I want you to obey me. And to obey me is to obey God's word. I've come to establish a, a, a new kingdom, but still it's rooted and grounded in, in, in God's word. So in Leviticus 14, there was... Uh, specifically described instructions that this man was to do. And Jesus says, well, if you want to follow me, 
this is what you must do in obedience. See, after the cross and the resurrection, you know, we'll do away with all of these mosaic cleaning rituals. But even right now in this moment, Jesus is saying, all of that testifies to who? It testifies to me. All of those things, they witness that someone greater than Moses is here. They all witness that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world, that Christ has come. So, so fascinating that the focus is not on the mechanics of the miracle, but rather that following faith comes what? Obedience. And that's picture one. We come now to picture two. And this is about the centurion's servant. We see this in verses 5 through 13. This passage is very interesting in that there are a lot of things that are somewhat surprising, at least that are supposed to be surprising. Catch our attention, right? At least seven things. We'll go through them quickly. Here's the first surprise. What's the first surprise? What do you think? The first surprise is that a centurion approached Jesus. Let's start right there. Being a centurion meant two things. And both of them, for a Jewish person, it was not cool. What do we know first? He was a Gentile. He was not a, he was not a Jew. He was not of the people of God. Second, as a centurion, right, as a Roman soldier, a Roman leader in the army, he was part of the Roman military, right? He was part of the people who were oppressing the people of God. So, according to the Jewish mind, what? He's the wrong, you know, he's the wrong culture, he's the wrong race, and he, and he was wearing the wrong uniform, right? Right off the bat, that's surprising. A centurion is coming to Jesus, right? Here's the second thing. The second thing that's surprising is this centurion who would have had to swear allegiance to who? Caesar as Lord what does he call Jesus? Lord. That's surprising. Lord is the first word of his request, and Lord is the first word of, of his reply, really. And again, if you come back to the usage of this word Lord in the Gospel of Matthew, it's somewhat sim symbolic. Believers call Jesus Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. Non-believers call Jesus what? Teacher. Rabbi. So it's surprising. This centurion calls him Lord. Here's the third surprise. This centurion, he's not asking for something for himself. He's asking it on behalf of what? His servant. That's a little surprising. Right? If you look at the original Greek word there for servant or slave, um, it could be translated and is translated in other translations as young servant or young man. So perhaps this was a boy, maybe, born to one of his household slaves. And this centurion is coming now asking on behalf of this person. You might say, what's surprising? What's the big deal? We have to understand the context of the culture. In the Greco-Roman world, the average person who had, had slaves had no more regard for a slave than just 
prop, just property. They looked at, at those who served them and said, you know, what's, what's the difference between this and, and the, the, the animals that I have that are just, you know, supporting me, right? They can talk and that's about it, right? That, that was the mentality. So now do you see this, why that's surprising? Why does this high-powered soldier care for this slave, right? Let him die, buy another one, right? Why humiliate yourself begging before this Jew, this poor person, Jesus? Why? That's surprising. Here's another surprise. Jesus responds, how? I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. Now, it's surprising on a couple of fronts, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, let me, let, me, let me examine him. Let me take a look at him. No, he doesn't. Need to. He says, uh, let me come and I will heal him, right? But it's also surprising that Jesus is willing to enter a Gentile's house. The Jews were prohibited from doing so. Culturally, this was a no. But Jesus... He's willing to cross over this line. Here's another surprise, a fifth surprise. Fifth surprise is that even though Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, the fifth surprise, what does the Gentile say? No, you won't. I'm not going to let you. <laughs> it's, it, all of these are surprises that are building up before us. Lord, he says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is a shocking thing for this man to say. In, the, uh, in uh, chapter 8, verse 20, we're going to find that Jesus is going to say something. He's going to say that he has nowhere to lay his head. He has no roof over his head, none that he can call his own. What is so worthy about this homeless Jew? to this centurion. It's surprising. There's a humility built in here that is supposed to startle us a bit. This Gentile, a military leader in the world's greatest army, a free Roman citizen, a man who has a household of slaves, meaning he's got some money, thinks that Jesus is so worthy that it's unthinkable that Jesus should come over into his house and let himself in. It's almost, it's, it's got the feeling that, that it's Jesus to him is royalty, like a king, if you will, right? Not worthy to have royalty come into his house. And from there, we come to the sixth surprise. We find this in verses 8 through 10. And I think the centurion's words are important. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my service, do this, and he does it. Jesus, just say a word, Jesus. I believe that that word will travel wherever it needs to go in time and will be powerful enough to heal my servant. Jesus hears this. It's almost like Jesus is surprised, which is kind of interesting to think about. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
this sixth surprise, this man's faith is what surprises Jesus. Why was, what, what's surprising? This centurion, he didn't grow up like Paul, learning the Torah. He didn't grow up in a Jewish culture with the scriptures being read to him from a very young age. But he knew enough to believe in Jesus and his word. He expressed, really, an unlimited confidence in Jesus' authority. So when Jesus says these words about the centurion's faith, he is highlighting to, specifically, I think, to his disciples who are standing right there, who are all Jews, right? And he's saying that not even they had showed this sincerity, this sensitivity, this humility, this love and depth of faith that this Gentile soldier had. And the seventh surprise comes, I think, and it flows quite naturally out of here from Jesus' really provocative statements in 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west, meaning believing Gentiles and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom unbelieving Jews will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's surprising about what Jesus is saying? It might be surprising to some that Jesus compares heaven to a feast. That might be surprising. He compares heaven to the best banquet party you could ever imagine. That might be shocking or surprising. It might be surprising about how Jesus talks about the reality of hell as though it is a place. That might be shocking to you. But he, but he speaks about it with some, with some candor, with some directness. That it's a place of great pain and regret a place where no one would want to be. But I think the greatest surprise, in fact, if you can call it a surprise because all of Scripture kind of points this direction, but the greatest surprise, especially to the Jewish people that heard what Jesus just said right there when he was describing heaven, the greatest surprise is who's in and who's out. Even the super religious, think about a Jewish Pharisee, for example. They are out if they will not bow their knee and call Jesus Lord. But the Gentile, the military man, the one that's working for the bad guys, because of his childlike faith, he is in. This second picture here, it is full of surprises. There, there's only really one thing that's not a surprise. You know what that is? 
the miracle itself, right? It's the least surprising thing, I think, in the whole passage in verse 13. It's almost as though it's sort of tacked on to the end there in verse 13. Oh, by the way, Jesus what? Said, let it be done. And it was done. The servant was healed at that very moment. Again, do you notice? The focus here is not really on the miracle itself, the mechanics of the miracle, or as astounding as the miracle is. The focus is not on the mechanics of the, mir- of the miracle. The focus is here is on the faith. And we come now to the third picture. The woman. Here we see how Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. We see in, in verses 14 and 15, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Why does Matthew include this story here? I mean, it seems like, it seems like he is constructing this chapter that follows the Sermon on the Mount very intentionally, right? Why does he include this third apparently minor miracle. Why? Why is it? What do you think? Was it to make it clear that Peter was married? Maybe he threw it in there so he just wanted us to know. I don't think it's that, right? Was it to show that even a minor health issue, like a fever, that that's not even too small for Jesus. Was it that? Hmm. I don't know if it's that either. Was it to show that it, when a woman gets healed, that they, their job is to then get up and start serving men immediately? Was that, was that what it is? I don't know. I don't think it's that one either. I don't think it's that. That's poor exegesis, right, if you went that route. What is it? Was it to show that Jesus, without being asked, desires to enter into the circumstance and help? I think we're getting, I think we're getting a little closer with that one. Was it to show that despite his harsh words for Jewish people, previously, right? What did he say? That those Jews, if they did not unbelieve, it, it was, those words were harsh. Was it that despite his harsh words back in verse 11 and 12, was it, did he do this to show that he had not forsaken his chosen people like this Jewish woman? I think that's part of it too. But I think the main reason Matthew includes this third miracle is to show that Jesus has come in the words of our call to worship this morning in Psalm 147, verse 2, that Jesus has come to gather the outcasts, to gather the outcasts of Israel Think about the outcasts of Israel. The leper falls into that. The woman falls into that. And the outcasts of the world, that Roman slave. Now, you might ask a question, hey, is, how, is, how is the woman an outcast? 
might jump into your mind. Again, we have to look at the, the cultural context of the day. In those days and in that place and in that time, women were viewed very much as second-class citizens. In some Jewish traditions, even touching a woman's hand, the way that Jesus touches the woman's hand, if you notice, he does touch her hand. In some Jewish traditions, even touching a woman's hand makes you unclean or unholy. In some Jewish traditions, even touching someone who had a kind of fever would even make you uh, unclean. Along those same lines, devout Jewish men, they had certain prayers that they would pray every day. And one of those types of prayers was this, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. A slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Now, do we see what's happening here in this passage? It, it is really quite beautiful. And as we come to close this morning, I, I want us to stop and look at the big picture, right? We got three smaller pictures, but maybe there's a bigger picture here. If you look at these first three recorded miracles of Jesus in Matthew, you see three groups of religious outcasts. In other words, what is Jesus doing? What is he showing? As the Sermon on the Mount becomes the Sermon on the Move, Jesus is showing that he is what? Letting the outsiders in. If you think forward to when Jesus is, dies upon the cross, what happens? The veil of the temple is what? It is split in two. And what happens there, the fact that we are now have this access to God in Christ, what happens upon the cross because of the suffering servant who is Jesus, all of that is actually being foreshadowed right here in Matthew chapter 8. I want you to think with me a, a picture in your mind, if you would, for a moment, and that is of the temple in Jerusalem. It was structured in a tiered fashion where there were these separated sections, and I want you to think with me of this picture for a moment. You had what? The Holy of Holies, this center place. Only the high priest could ever venture in. Then what? The holy place. Priests could enter into there. Outside of that, you had the court of men. This is where Jewish men could enter in to come and worship. But outside of that, you had the court of women. The women couldn't come into the court of men. The men couldn't come into the holy place. And the, all the priests couldn't come into the Holy of Holies. You see, you see how it's set up. The Holy, Holy of Holies for the high priest, the Holy Place for the priest, the court of men, the court of women. What came next? The court of Gentiles. Another tier, another boundary, 
another wall that's separating. The, the court of Gentiles, what was this for? This is for Gentile converts to Jerusalem that wanted to come. Couldn't come into the court of women, couldn't come into the court of men, but the court of Gentiles. And then outside of that, you had the temple walls. And who was outside of that? Those lepers. They couldn't get a sniff of even the walls, the outer walls of the temple. But what do these miracles foreshadow? What do these miracles show? With these three miracles, those walls, those walls to the court of the women, they are what? They are broken down. Then beyond that, the walls of the court of the Gentiles broken down. And even beyond that, the walls of the temple itself are leveled. Why? So that even, even the lepers, the most outcast, can wander themselves into the presence of God. See, in Jesus, the gates to the kingdom of heaven are open. They are open to all who believe. They are open to all who call him what? Lord. They are open to all who get up and do what? Serve him. And we've looked at these three pictures in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew and they present three pictures of Jesus and how they dis all three display what? His power to who? The powerless. And I think of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we have these three smaller pictures, but these three smaller pictures give rise to the big picture. And the big picture that we have here in these three portraits is all people, irrespective of their background, irrespective of their cultural traditions, irrespective of all that, all people united in faith under the cross of Jesus. And as we go from this place, what will we take from God's word? Will we merely see three miracles and have our mouths agape at the wonder? Or will we go a layer underneath and understand the faith, the faith that has confidence yet humility, the faith that begins with a poverty of spirit and that puts its trust in the one who is faithful to heal us and restore us and take our sins upon himself. Let's thank 
the Lord and ask him to open our eyes to the truth of his word this morning. Let's worship the Lord together.